Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My special guest today is a shining example of the transformative powers of learning. He battled all the odds. He was born blind, endured a childhood blighted by poverty, and was told his best chance in life was to become a piano tuner. Undeterred, he pursued education, an opportunity that proved an indelible influence uh, to what came after. At 22, he was Britain's youngest councillor and in 1997 became the first blind cabinet minister. As education secretary under Tony Blair, he fought tooth and nail to improve education for all and he's not finished fighting just yet. Uh, Lord Blunkett, good afternoon. Absolutely delighted uh, to have you on the programme. David, Mariella, David. David, <laughs> David thank you, fine. David. Very nice to have you here. I hope uh, you're not sweltering in the same, at the I same am, level. I am, I am, just like <laughs> you. you? <laughs> uh, now, um, you, you, you recently have um, panned what was, I think, meant to be a report, but turned out to be more of a, a manifesto. And, and in it, you described yourself as, as having the potential to be more of a resource uh, to Keir Starmer. And he has just uh, set about this very Blairite um, reshuffle. Um, are you hoping to be back in that cabinet, perhaps? Shadow oh, no, cabinet? No, 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 no. Those days have long gone. I'm, I'm not going to emulate Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden. I promise, I promise the listeners that I won't be doing that. No, I'm just happy to sit on the sidelines and be drawn down on and give advice when I'm asked. And that advice would be about what went wrong as well as what went right. And to throw out ideas that it's difficult for shadow cabinet members to do without upsetting the apple cart. So maybe I could throw one or two ideas out, not not in the three months leading up to the election, but um, over the next month or two. I mean, in fairness, uh, it would appear there's just a sort of tsunami of woe around the education system and indeed um infrastructure uh, at the moment. We'll go on to talk about that in a second. But I mean, in, in terms of where we are now, how would you describe it succinctly in your beautiful way, of course? Um, my succinct would be a public relations disaster. Um, I, I think there are real issues on underlying all of this in terms of when investment was available, what was known, how things have been handled. But at the moment, the issue of this uh, rack, this concrete, has sort of dominated the agenda for day after day, and frankly, diverts from a much more important issue, which is that children have just come back or are just about to go back to school. Uh, Colleges are reopening, universities will be reassembling, and we really need to concentrate on what we're doing in the classrooms that still exist, and the development of a very different kind of learning and teaching for the future. I've been arguing very strongly that artificial intelligence is both a challenge but an opportunity and we need to teach about it and how people can use it so they don't get left behind but we can also make it a resource for teaching in the classroom and at home. So there should be a revolution in my view in the way in which we approach 
the curriculum and education for the future. And at the moment, mm. we're arguing about concrete. Indeed, and I want to unpick all of that with you in a moment, particularly the sort of combining of, of vocational and academic studies and so on. But uh, you know, earlier today, as you mentioned, <laughs> there is a, a huge issue around n- not just concrete, perhaps, but also uh, government ministers' uh, behaviour. Uh, earlier today on the breakfast programme, Nick Gibb, the schools minister, told Times Radio that Gillian Keegan's recent outburst were a result of frustration. Let's hear that. But there's still 5% remaining. And we've been ch- and we have chased those questionnaires several times. So are they the people that are sitting on their arse? I just well, want to know who these people are. Well, it was a, it, she's apologised for the use of that language. But what the frustration is that we want those remaining 5% to respond. We've got a deadline now of this Friday by which they need to respond. And that was the kind of frustration. Okay. You've done the job, David. D- did you sympathise with Nick at all or indeed with Gillian Keegan? You know, we've all said things when we didn't realise we were being overheard, I'm sure. I personally like Gillian and I think she's doing everything she can. I, I don't think that uh, her remarks were aimed at people not getting surveys back. Um, I think there's been lots of comments as to where they were uh, aimed in terms of uh, past decisions, recent past decisions that were made about not putting the investment in. And I would sympathise very greatly with her about that. I mean, I had some gigantic uh, battles with Gordon Brown and the Treasury team over spending. But I was very fortunate because the moment we got in, even though we'd committed uh, not to to engage in, in substantial spending until the spending review took place uh, 18 months later, we did have the windfall levy and we put immediately a billion pounds Uh, into the pot for renewing and refurbishing schools, bearing in mind that we inherited a situation back in 97, without going over history, where we were spending less than £600 million a year, less than £600 million a year on the whole of the school building programme, repairs as well as new builds. So there had to be a transformation. By the time I left the job in 2001 and went to the Home Office, we were spending four billion a year, so you could see the transformation. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned nineteen ninety seven. Of course, as I understand it, um, this issue with RAC first came to light or first began to surface, dare I say, um, in around nineteen ninety five. So it was a problem during New Labour's era as well. How aware of it were you back then? I was aware of the issues around flat roofs, and actually, it is associated with the the flat roof problem, i.e that you're going to get water penetration. And, and uh, we, we had that in spades. We had uh, buckets galore under under roofs. We had windows falling out. Uh, we, we even had over 400 schools with only outside toilets. I mean, people listening, wow. this, is, this is not the 19th century I'm talking about. This is uh, 28 years ago. So it, it is a... It is a real uh, uh, 36 years ago. Gosh, I better do my maths properly. Um, <laughs> go back it, to it, school, it a, David. Absolutely. Go back to school, David. Um, it, is a, it is a real challenge going back a very long way. And I don't think people have fully realised until it looks like man, 2017. It's very hard to actually uh, ascertain now just when the extent of the problem started to be to uh, to emerge. Uh, But the Comptroller and Auditor General writing in the Times newspaper, of course, this morning has highlighted that this is not something that has emerged over the school holidays.
And 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 if it were ha- if you were still in the job and it was happening right now, I mean, gargantuan battles with Gordon Brown aside, or perhaps as part of it, what, what would you what would you do? Because the situation is as it is, and there's a a, a lot of furore. Obviously, in the media, it's a lot about uh, you know who to blame. Uh, ultimately, it feels like there's a long line of of yeah people to blame, or perhaps choices yeah. and d- decisions what, to what, blame. What what I would have done is to have phased this once you knew, well, at least 18 months ago and survey work started, to try and phase it in terms of what the surveyors believed were the most dangerous. In other words, you have to make real choices in these decisions. I had to do that as Home Secretary in terms of uh, resilience and and what we had to do um, to protect ourselves. And sometimes that means you say, look, we'll, we'll tackle these first because that's important we'll give others notice that we are monitoring the situation regularly and we'll plan for that work to be done over the next two years now that might sound harsh but i think it's a lot better than a panic where suddenly across the country 150 uh, schools find themselves substantially closed and where we have to find alternative accommodation and where we suddenly have to draw in very scarce resources in terms of construction in an unplanned way. So I I know it's easy to be clever when you're not having to make the decisions and not being abused in Parliament for putting children at risk. But let let me put it this way, Mariella. If I was Secretary of State for Education and Employment, which I was all those years ago, I would have said to Parliament, we have to tackle this in a thoughtful, planned, sensible way. Nobody wants to put children's lives at risk, but a panic doesn't actually help. Mm. I mean, clearly the system lacks funding. Uh, Labour's main policy um, for, um, uh, you know, achieving uh, more funding for schools uh, seems to be the abolishing of the charitable tax status for for public schools. And I I wonder if you think that's going to be enough or if that doesn't just sustain this sort of sense of the being us and them and and perhaps isn't helpful in the in the much bigger picture uh, of, of, as you describe it, a revolution that needs to happen within the education system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, that decision on priorities and resource would be what's called revenue, i.e. day-to-day spending, as opposed to raising the capital funding for school buildings, repair and maintenance, which which we've just been talking about. Mm. So the question is, how do we get more money to actually transform both what's happening in the classroom, the shortage, the teacher shortage, which is substantial. Mm-hmm. By the way, was was the same back in the 90s. Uh, we had schools on four-day weeks in 96, 97. It, one of the reasons we got such a large majority, just one of the reasons, was that there were actually marches in market towns 
where people had never demonstrated in their lives because of what was happening to the to the to the schools. So we, we're almost deja vu, we're almost back where we we started. Um, it, it will be clear that in the first year or eighteen months, an incoming government will not have vast sums of money. So we need to just get to to grips with that. However, the notion that there is quote no money is a misunderstanding of how government works. We saw the Department for Education find the money for the teachers' pay award, the settlement that was reached in the summer. There are substantial underspends right across government at the moment, and not throwing it away, but a government coming in should ask every uh, permanent secretary uh, and bring in people from outside if need be to examine every possible area of the budget so that we could release resources to do uh, what we want to do and to start building that for the future. To take net, net zero, we couldn't spend £28 billion, which is what we've committed to in the long term, in the first year anyway, because you have to plan to be able to put those measures in place. So you have to skill the people, you have to get the, the materials together, you have to have a plan. And so I think over the first four or five years of an incoming government, you will see substantial change, but it's all not going to happen in the first 12 months. Mm. I mean, one of the things that, that, that Labour have said is unaffordable is the idea of free school meals. And you will be very aware of the degree of, of child poverty in the UK at the moment and the increase in visits to food banks and so on. Sadiq Khan was um, on the breakfast programme this morning talking about his London-wide free school meals. Um, and, 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 you know, it seems to me, you know, you talk we're not in the 19th century, but it seems to me almost prehistoric that this sort of stigma of poverty continues to permeate our schools, you know, with, with free school meals provision and the, the sense that, that children are, you know, being identified for their their family's lack of, 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 of finance. Well, we're back to prioritisation. I mean, in, a, in the ideal world of all worlds, we'd provide all children with a free breakfast when they arrived and free, free uh, lunch and uh, free milk, which is what I had when I went to school all those yeah, years me too. <laughs> ago. Um, we can't. And there's an enormous dead weight cost here, which means that there's a lot of people who can afford perfectly well to provide a meal for their children, either in terms of them being able to go home or to have a decent meal at school. I think the big challenge is to expand the free school meals programme to make sure, and this happens in most schools now, that there isn't a stigma, that there is no uh, lining up in one queue or having to present a docket so that it's clear that you're a free school meals recipient. That, that used to happen, but as far as I'm aware, in virtually all schools now, that's been eliminated, not least because you can do fingerprint um, uh, recognition um, very easily. And, and secondly, that we should actually look at what happens in the holidays. Many local authorities have been providing uh, substantial support over the summer. Uh, that happened during COVID. As you know, the government actually had a programme of the, the, the worst of the COVID period. We, we need to keep that going because children who are hungry are not hungry for 39 weeks of the year. They're hungry for 52 weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go uh, to your uh, weighty document uh, on education, which, I mean, in truth, reads more like a sort of vision for the future of the country than than simply a, a policy proposal. Uh, you've said that Labour needs to be radical, um, how, and you've used the word revolution already in our conversation. Uh, in what way? 
Well, we're facing a, a massive change, which has already started, of course, in the world of work. People uh, during the pandemic learned all kinds of ways of working, as as you are today, Mariella, and that will accelerate. And the onset of artificial intelligence, the use of robotics, the way in which that changes, I don't just mean office jobs and those linked to uh, digital. I'm talking about construction and healthcare uh, and areas which link to net zero, all of which will be transformed by the technology of tomorrow. And we need to equip our young people either with vocational skills that might also overlap into academic and academic skills that should overlap into vocational. After all, um, those those um, taking on medical courses are both academic and vocational. Those doing engineering are academic and vo- vocational. Uh, e- even those doing theology, if they're going to being a vicar, <laughs> is actually vocational. So we need to break down the barriers of vocational and academic and each opportunity needs to be followed by the stepping stone of the next. So we're talking about lifelong learning so that people can relearn. People go back to university later in life. I, I was a semi-mature student. I was 22 when I went to university. As you described at the beginning of our discussion, I went to evening class. And um, when I got a job, I got day released to college to, to get the qualifications uh, that got me to university. But I've been learning ever since. And I think if if I could just say to your listeners who are grandparents, parents or uh, young people who have not yet gone back to school uh, or college or university, if we could light that candle where whatever we do and whatever the capability and the aptitude of the young person, they start to love learning, the, the love of learning. And we don't. We turn youngsters off, particularly at secondary level. We've got to examine how we teach, what we teach, and why we're teaching it. How do you foster a love of learning when you've got um, schools where resources are challenged, infrastructure is challenged, teachers are striking, there's been a pandemic, uh, you know, online learning remains prevalent in some areas. You know, how do you do it? Well, let's presume immediately that every teacher wants to set that candle alight, that they, they really want to be able to reach youngsters, whatever their aptitude. Because they're so different, the importance of pupil-centred learning, which got a bad name, it has to be back on the agenda. Now, you can do this with new technology. You can, you can set up a programme for each child uh, in the class which works to their strengths and at their speed, and you can use that as part of the tutoring programme that the government have invested in. I give credit where credit's due. Uh, and you can link that to the world of home because quite a big challenge for the love of learning and uh, the exploration of possibilities and aspiration of the future is a differential between what parents have experienced and how confident they are to help their youngsters. So we need to reach out and help the parents as well as switching on the children. And yes, of course, the, the more resource you have in terms of teaching assistants and the teacher becoming a, a manager and organiser of that learning is critically important. But I still think that with the sensible use of intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence and, and technology, it would be possible over a period of time to really rethink how we reach students. And that's true of adults as well with, micro, with modular and micro 
uh, credits so that you could build up those credits over time. You don't always have to go into full-time learning. You can do part-time, you can do evening class. Uh, so flexibility, you're yeah. talking about a lot more yes. flexibility in the system. Absolutely. What, what about, I mean, one of your recommendations is, and I'm, I know I'm being too literal with this, but humor me, uh, public-private collaborations. And I wondered what you thought of of um, Eaton now describing itself as a charity and and collaborating to set up these, um, st- with, with Star Academies to set up these schools. Do you think that there is value in, because that, that includes a lot of the things you're talking about in terms of access to tutoring and, and, uh, and so on. Uh, do you think that that is a good purpose, that, that perhaps public schools schools uh, could be put to in that way? Well, I think there's a real possibility. I've spoken to William Waldegrave, who's the provost, and uh, and Simon Henderson, who's the head, about this. This this is not a new idea. It goes back to the late 60s and uh, Anthony Crossland. We, we, I say we, that was essentially myself and Estelle Morris and, and the team at Education, looked at how we could collaborate in terms of shortage subjects like Latin, where youngsters who, who felt the aptitude and needed Latin for their progress uh, could link in to the private sector who have uh, much more capacity. We, we, we thought this in terms of specialist subjects like music, uh, where someone has a very specific aptitude and you could develop it. My problem with what Eaton are doing at the moment, and it wouldn't apply everywhere, but it applies in some areas, is that they come in as a cuckoo in the nest where sixth form colleges and sixth forms have just started to really improve dramatically and they pull out the better, the academically uh, more able students. And at that moment, yeah, at that moment, they undermine those institutions that have really begun to transform themselves. So I think there are areas of the country where there is a crying need for excellence post-16, because this is what they're doing. Uh, But I think there's areas of the country where if they really collaborated, they could link, again using technology, between the school and Eton College, and they could really make this work for the benefit of everyone rather than just for a very small few. There's a, a lot of conversation, just moving on to, to universities, a lot of conversation uh, recently about, you know, why do we have universities there as the sort of totem or the the aspiration and that vocational skills are just as important and apprenticeships uh, should be focused on more and so on. And and also a sort of dismissal of liberal arts subjects as, as not equating to a good job or a, a, a particularly well-paid job at the end of, of that degree. I I wondered what you thought about that, because, I mean, you've said that, you know, universities will only win over local populations if they, um, you know, avoid the elephant trap of being involved in identity politics and and cancel culture. Do you think that universities need to sell themselves better in terms of of their offer? Well, I'm uh, attending the Universities UK annual conference in Manchester later this week, and I shan't hector them, but I will say that we really do need to start presenting what universities are doing and could do a lot more effectively. Many of them are anchor institutions in their local community. They're transformational, not just in terms of the jobs, but the the, uh, input into the local economy through knowledge transfer into the business community. So the collaboration between universities and businesses is, is really profound, but you wouldn't know about it unless you actually got involved and made an effort to find out. 
And that, that applies, obviously, in terms of research and development and our global uh, role as well as the, the local one. And the two are not incompatible, and nor are vocational and academic coming together incompatible. The University of Sheffield and Warwick pioneered, and others are now doing it, the idea of advanced uh, apprenticeships. So the university is linked to the apprenticeship programme uh, in the business, and they give the opportunity to get a degree through the apprenticeship. And then if they want to go on to post postgraduate or whatever and into research, they can do so. I think it's a false dichotomy between those who are taking BTEC National Diploma and now T-levels on the one hand and those who are doing A-levels and academic routes on the other. I think we need to mix them. And I think we need to mix them at higher education and further education level so that there's a, a collaborative approach. It is happening. It's spreading it and scaling it up and getting the message across that simply abusing one of the gems in our crown, that is our higher education uh, institutions, one of our massive contributions to global uh, well-being, to, to, to trash that is a massive mistake. And where do you think identity politics and cancel culture fit in with that? I mean, in, 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 in what way are they um, being detrimental, should we say, to, to the advancement of universities? Well, the irony is there's not a lot of it, but when there is, <laughs> people are able to highlight it and pick on it. And you'll read it on a front page much more readily when somebody's done something silly, um, like, you know, shouldn't really be reading that book or let's spend all our time i've got to be careful how i pronounce this word decolonializing the curriculum okay there are things that could be done sensible things that nobody would disagree with and there are things that divert us and become a fetish and once they do then they allow others to exploit that and to be able to present the university sector as uh, as, as something that we can afford to criticise roundly and to rubbish rather than to be proud of and to improve. Uh, and it, it's a simple message, really, that you only have to read, not necessarily the Times, I have to say, but just take a look at some but of the But it's an excellent papers. paper. Uh, of course it is, Mariella. Um, so just take a look at some yeah, of the other newspapers occasionally and you'll see these stories. And I, I don't want to give them legs. Fair enough. Uh, just finally, and I'm going to get into terrible trouble for crashing the news, but okay. um, we talk a lot about the negatives. And yet you are a, a prime example, a sterling example of a kid who started out with very little chance of furthering their education in any way. You developed an aptitude for learning, so much so that you ended up being education uh, secretary. How you know, how do you explain what happened with you? What what was it that, that that gave you this hunger for knowledge and determination to succeed against the odds that you've described so accurately today? You you need to set the fire. You need to ensure that there's that there's a desire to do better, to believe in yourself, to actually have that aspiration, and that means building tenacity uh, and self belief. And that can only happen if there are people around you who are prepared to help. One teacher came down in his own time, week after week to evening class, to help me get what was then O-level physics, which I'd have never got without him. So it's a commitment to each other, but it requires us to get up off our bums, 
I'm not going to say get on our bikes, but get off, off our bums and be prepared to put a shift in. And if you get the two together, then for most, not for all, but for most, it will work.